so welcome everybody to our symposium of on uh, knowledge and innovation management. So thank you so much to everybody who has joined in. And obviously, huge thanks to our fantastic panelists, uh, Marka, Miles, Tobias, and Mikael. Thank you so much for joining us. I also want to give a big shout out to Marka, who actually put us all together. And I'm very much looking forward to all the interesting discussion that emerges. Now, the uh, motivation for this, uh, for, for this symposium basically comes from the idea that, you know, while typically we think about you know, strategy and strategic questions as something at the firm level. Uh, when it comes to knowledge and innovation, there are actually a lot of papers and lots of scholars who do research at different level of analysis. Uh, can you could you please click the next slide? Okay, okay here we go. Uh, so now, for example, uh, we can think of the individual level of analysis, like non-exhaustive list, but you know, inventors mobility networks, uh, industry, uh, university collaboration, or uh, for instance, a platform level of analysis, thinking about how platform can generate innovations, platform evolution between platform competition, um, industry level of analysis, like stages of the industry evolution, standards emergence, industry boundaries, or region level, again, not limited to, but thinking of geographical clusters, externalities, spillovers, collocation. Now, the idea of this symposium is to um, actually uncover what are the key takeaways in each of these four different levels of analysis, individual, platform, industry, and region, uh, to think how the, um, the takeaways or insights from this analysis can be linked to the firm level, uh, to the firm level questions, right? To the strategic issues at the firm level, and what are potential gaps that exist in linking those, um, those different levels of analysis? So the, the overall idea is to connect those different levels of analysis and think how it can help us better understand the strategic questions. Um, well, a little caveat, we could have potentially included a fifth level, a diet level, like alliances, but here we've, we chose to concentrate on the four above mentioned levels because there's actually a separate track at SCR for alliances. So the way we'll do it, we'll start with a big panel uh, session, uh, roughly for an hour, uh, and we'll go from micro level to macro level. So we start with um, an individual level, then go to platform, industry, and finish with region, and then we'll have the and then we'll have the uh, Q and A session. For Q and A, uh, I also encourage you to start writing questions in the chat, and the panelists can start engaging. Once we are uh, over with the panel presentations, I can go, I will go and call back the questions and pose them to panelists. Okay, and of course, goes without saying, please, if you please could stay on mute while we are doing the presentations. I will try to be the mean timekeeper and keep it below fifteen minutes per presentation. So I'm sorry, I'm the bad cop here. Uh, but with this, I think we are done with the introductions. So I think. Uh, Mikael, please, if you could start with the individual level, the floor is yours. I think you're, you're on the you are the muted. Yes, 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 yes. Can you see my slides? Okay, great. 
Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Maka and Elena, for uh, inviting me here. It's really uh, a great, a great pleasure and honor to be part of this panel. Um, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Mikael Bika from INSEAD. Um, and in fact, when I talked to uh, uh, Maka about what was the point of this panel, and she told me, uh, we, you, you need to explain why uh, we should care about the individual level of uh, strategy scholars. Um, I, I, I had a bit of a flashback uh, of my job talk at INSEAD and specifically an interview after my job talk with someone who asked me, so you study innovation, are you looking at the individual level or, and, or, the, or the firm level? And I said individual level. And, and, and I could very quickly see from the look on his face that that was not the right answer. Um, so clearly there are some dots in the field. Thank God I still um, luckily got my job uh, in the strategy uh, area. Um, but clearly there is some skepticism uh, out there around uh, whether um, strategy scholars or we as a field of strategy should care. I put myself in it, notice I'm biased. Uh, should care about uh, individuals, and so and so and so. I guess uh, what I'm going to try to do in this presentation is to argue that we people who study individuals also should have a seat at the table. But I had no idea where to start because it's not like I've ever really presented anything on this before. So I had a bit of a blank slide moment, uh, and, and and so of course this is 2023. So I turned I turned to AI. Um, I first went to Dali. Uh, for inspiration, uh, asking it uh, to give me a painting highlighting how individual contributes to innovation performance uh, in the style of the School of Fontainebleau, because I'm in a school in Fontainebleau. Um, and uh, that's what it produced. Now, I don't know if you find it really helpful. I did not. So I guess that was not a case of AI really being helpful. Uh, but I did not give up. Uh, I went to uh, ChatGPT. And ask it the same, uh, the same, the same question, and and was uh, equally unfazed uh, by the answer, and so I ended up uh, asking it to give me a, a quote from a famous person uh, uh, celebrating the role of individual individuals in firm uh, uh, performance, and it brought it brought this uh, this quote from Steve Jobs saying, you know, innovations come from people, innovation comes from people meeting up in the hallways. Or calling each other at 10:30 at night with uh, a new idea, or because they realize something uh, that shoots holes in how they've been thinking about a problem. So, if ChatGPT says that Steve Jobs says it, then it has to be true. Uh, so that's what, what we're gonna uh, what I'm gonna start with here. Um, strategy, hopefully, I think we as strategy scholars understand that uh, technology innovation. Um, uh, big and important reasons why firms fail or succeed. Uh, and so what I'm going to uh, argue is that um, firms really don't innovate on their own. It's really the people inside the firms that innovate. And so if we don't look, if we ignore uh, that it is people that do the innovation, then we are going to be uh, missing a big, a big piece of that puzzle. Um, how am I going to uh, pursue this argument? Well, I'm just going to... Uh, Give you a list of a few, a few small insights uh, that one can get uh, from uh, looking at individuals. Uh, there is absolutely no claim whatsoever of being exhaustive. Um, people have been looking at the link between uh, individuals and innovation 
from all kind of angles in all kind of literature. Yeah, which one you're working on? I'm going to try to finish up the tactics for Rudy. Okay. Sony? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, for, from all kinds of uh, perspectives, uh, in all kinds of fields, uh, of course, there's a huge literature on this in economics, there's a huge literature on this in OB and in psychology, and, and, and of course, there's a huge literature on this in strategy as well. Uh, and and, I, and I'm not going to even try to be exhaustive because, frankly, I don't feel that I have the skills to do that. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, focusing on, I guess, the, 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 some of the things that I know. Uh, it's not that I'm really desperate for, for more citations. No, no, of course, that would be great, but uh, that's not the point here. Uh, it's just that this is what I know, and I'm more comfortable uh, talking about stuff I know than talking about stuff I, I know nothing about. Um, so, so here are a few ways in which uh, individuals matter for innovation. Um, and demographics, uh, skills, um, time and place, uh, incentives and collaboration. These are the things, uh, the different, the different perspectives that I, I, I want to talk about uh, today. So let's start with demographics. And again, demographics is huge, right? When you talk about people, you talk about, you of course talk about people come with demographic characteristics, right? People have a specific age, people have a specific gender, uh, people have a specific race or ethnicity, uh, and, and those are correlated or have been correlated with innovation. Uh, so here I'm going to uh, focus on uh, gender because that's what I know the best. Not saying that the others don't matter. Many of the others matter probably more. Gender is just the one that I know the best. So that's the one I'm going to be talking about. Um, uh, turns out innovation is not equally distributed across genders at all. Um, it is a, a sad fact of life that uh, still today, uh, most innovation comes from men. Um, and of course, there is this uh, a vast literature out there uh, about why that is, and there's a lot of, of, of potential drivers for this. Uh, there's one that struck me as particularly interesting and important, that it, it's, it looks like uh, uh, men get rewarded more for the idea they have than women do. Uh, and so there is a growing number of, of papers uh, looking at that effect, and I have a, a working paper on that as well. Um, that's important. That's important, the fact that uh, most innovations come from men, because uh, women would do a different kind of innovation that men do. In a way, it's not just about the magnitude, the lost Einstein, there are some papers about lost Einsteins. Uh, it's not just about the lost Einsteins that we have or the lost Marie Curie that, we, where, that we're missing out on, and uh, all this insight that we are not making uh, that is slowing down the pace of, of, of science or technology, which it is, uh, but it's also the direction of science technology that's affected. And I'm thinking, of course, uh, you can think of the work of Eric von Hippel on user innovation, but I'm thinking more specifically about the recent paper by uh, Rem Koenig and, and, and Samsa Samila and J.P. Ferguson, showing that uh, women do just different kinds of science and have different kinds of ideas. And by having not having uh, women do more science, we're just missing out on a lot of, uh, a lot of amazing insights. Uh, so I think those are important considerations that anyone in strategy interested in, in, in strategy in innovation performance of firms need to be aware of some of those dynamics. Again, not claiming that gender is the only demographic element that matters. There, there might be others. Are, I've, I've heard many people tell me that, you know, some, some, some ethnicities like, you know, African-Americans, et cetera, matters even more. 
Uh, but that's that's uh, that I think an important an important dimension here. Um, so that's gender. Uh, what about skills? Again, when you think about individuals, you think people have skills. Uh, skills matter, and there's a lot of different skills out there. And again, not claiming to be uh, exhaustive here. Uh, the kind of skills that I've been studying is about specialization or brokerage. Um, there is a, a, a big literature out there about um, um, the importance of specialization for innovation. Uh, innovation is becoming increasingly hard to get to the frontier. People need to uh, specialize and study for many, many years. This has been called uh, by Ben Jones the burden of knowledge and has given rise to big literature. And that means uh, more collaboration. That means more narrow specialty, more interdependency across innovators. Um, so that's one trend. Uh, there is a, a big literature out there that has been focusing on recombination, the importance of recombination for innovation. And that literature has highlighted that if you want to recombine, especially recombine stuff that has not been recombined before, you want to be more of a generalist. You want to be some kind of broker and, 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 and kind of know more things. So there is uh, a tension here between uh, a big, big literature that has been uh, thinking about uh, the importance of specialization and another big literature that has been thinking about uh, the importance uh, of brokerage. So breadth versus depth, if you want. And this tension has given rise to a number of studies that has tried to reconcile those two. Of course, uh, uh, Kevin, Franta, and I have produced one such study, uh, but again, not, not, not claiming that this is the most important or the best or whatever, it's just the one I know the best. Uh, and in that study, we've been looking at, um, at the pace of change in different fields and showing that uh, specialists do relatively better than generalists when the pace of change, when the frontier evolves fast, right? So you can, you can innovate at the frontier when there is a lot happening, uh, innovate as a specialist better when there is a lot happening at the frontier. But when, when nothing is happening at the frontier, then you can innovate relatively better as a generalist through brokerage. Um, so that's that's about skills. Now time time and place. Uh, I put them together. I don't know if they deserve to be put together because frankly, there is a lot more about we know a lot more about place than we know about time. I'm gonna argue here uh, that uh, timing is important, and we know surprisingly little about this. Uh, there is phenomenon like Sleeping Beauties, you know, those papers, scientific papers that no one pays attention to for decades until some like suddenly they become huge. That's that's an established phenomenon called Sleeping Beauties that I find phenomena that, that I find very interesting. Um, that we talk anecdotally about the time is ripe for an idea at some point in time, right? Some sometimes, um, and 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 of course that 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 literature. Uh, and, and people looking at simultaneous discoveries or those idea twins have been thinking about this idea of the time being ripe and what makes the time being ripe at a specific point uh, in time, right? So we, we don't really know that, where, that, that that much about the importance of time. And I'm going to argue uh, based on this little anecdotal like, evidence about sleeping beauties, about twins, that timing actually matters. What we know a lot about is geography. Now, of course, Miles, I think we'll talk about uh, uh, cities later. So I don't want to uh, still, uh, any of his uh, thunder out for I'm sure I, I, I couldn't even if I wanted, was trying to. Um, but uh, in, uh, innovation is absolutely not equal, evenly distributed across places. And there's been a bunch of big literature out there looking at how individuals might want to 
uh, be at some places rather than others if they want to be uh, more innovative. The role of superstar, for instance, um, you can uh, think about all the work around uh, around hubs, of course, and this idea that as an individual, if you put yourself in a hub, you benefit not only from collocation with other people with maybe different ideas, but you may also have access. But hubs are also um, brings together uh, roads toward a broader world, if you want. And, 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 and so through those roads, uh, being in a hub, you have access to ideas that are uh, further away. Um, <clears throat> so that was time and place. Now, uh, incentives, of course, incentives uh, matter um, when it comes to innovation as well. There's been a, a lot of work showing that uh, innovators uh, like to be free and to be left alone. Uh, I hope that in this crowd, this will resonate. <laughs> um, so we value freedom as innovators. Uh, we uh, and 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 it's been linked. This freedom has been linked to um, more exploration, perhaps more failure, but also more breakthrough. Um, incentives, of course, uh, don't only matter uh, for the people; it also matters for the work, the innovation that's being done. Um, there is evidence that some uh, type of incentive will uh, get people to uh, do things that is a lot more shaky than it needs to be. You can think of the publish, and publish or perish uh, kind of ethos in academia, letting some people perhaps cut in corners, leading to a big replicability crisis uh, in, in, in some parts of academia. Um, and of course, um, incentives uh, matter for community work. Uh, so you can prevent others from using uh, your ideas. That's going to affect um, whether the idea is going to be used, the rate and the direction at which it will be used, in which it will be used. Right. So, 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 so what is good for the innovators is not always what's good for the ideas. And as a firm, if you care about firm performance, you care about the idea that happened at the firm, you need to understand that the two don't necessarily align. Um, so for instance, uh, in the case of uh, collaboration, which is something that I've been looking at with a number of co-authors, this idea that um, we over-reward collaboration in our fields. Uh, so when I work alone, I get 100% of the credit for my work. But if I work with one person, we may each get 70% of the credit for our work. If I work with two people, uh, we all, uh, all, all, all three of us will get 50% of the credit for the work. You see that the, the, the pie increases uh, uh, just by virtue of collaboration, which is super unfair for the people who don't collaborate. Uh, but that has been uh, shown to be the case. Um, so what, what that means is that for an innovator standpoint, uh, incentives are not necessarily aligned with uh, what's good from an idea standpoint. So from the firm standpoint, the corporate, the, 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 sorry, the innovation performance standpoint. And unless we understand some of those tensions, uh, we might lead, uh, firms might have lower, uh, lower innovation performance. Uh, and finally, when we're talking about collaboration, um, innovation is uh, has become a, a collaborative uh, endeavor, enterprise. We went from a world in the past few decades uh, where people used to work alone uh, at producing new ideas to a world in which very much uh, teams are the norm. And that has massive implications uh, for uh, the way we think about uh, how innovation is getting produced. Um, one interesting fact is that stuff that is done in collaboration tends to be of higher quality. That finding has been replicated over and over and over again, could be important. Uh, but, but by uh, focusing on collaboration, we also are losing a lot of visibility about who does what, who deserves credit for things. 
Uh, we might have more cases like uh, Matthew effect, whereby the most senior person does get the credit because they are senior, even though they might have done nothing. Um, and, and, and of course, there might be a space for uh, more smaller teams for more disruptive work. At least there is some uh, recent study that has argued that small firms are, are, are better to uh, for disruptive stuff. Okay, there are just a few insights about the stuff we can learn by looking at individual level. Uh, so can one call them the self-strategy scholars, strategy researchers, uh, by studying uh, uh, innovation at the level of individuals? Well, I hope so. I work in a strategy department and I study individuals. So I hope I get to keep my job after this presentation. And I want to finish with a quote from ChatGPT, which quotes Steve Jobs, which is never a bad thing to do. You know, the, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Uh, so let's believe ChatGPT when it quotes Steve Jobs. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Mikael. So like virtual round of applause. Um, also, like I know, I think there are already some questions from Christina, Manash, and Habibe. I kind of encourage you if you want to engage already in the chat. But then at the end, I will go back in the Q and A as well. Um, so with this, uh, please, uh, Tobias, if you could tell us more about the platforms. Yes, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, very happy to he be here. Um, I'm going to unshare Mikael and try to find my slide. Is that visible? Fantastic. Okay, um, thank you very much. Um, I have no fancy painting and I have no quotes from ChatGPT, uh, so uh, I'm afraid Mikhail has uh, come up as an individual. He's come up with uh, with better ideas, uh, with innovative, more innovative ideas. Um, I, on the other hand, have a daughter who just discovered rope skipping. So if you hear a thumping noise in the back. Um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be my daughter. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, a platform perspective on knowledge and innovation. And um, <clears throat> so I think it's it's really interesting if we think about um, first of all we try to define the unit of uh, of observation, right? And so uh, we talked about individuals. The obvious next level would be the firm. Right, and so if we think about uh, a platform firm, then you know the, the the usual suspects would come to mind, and then we could look at the um, you know behavior, innovative behavior, the the share of R and D money spent uh, by these firms, and so on. But really, when we think about the 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 platform about platform innovation, we need to include both the complements and the user side. Um, so we might also want to include advertisers if we're talking about uh, uh, sort of the business model side of things. And then, of course, we need to include the fact that all of those hang together, right? So there are interactions. The whole point of a platform is to try and foster, to try and uh, generate interactions. And so when we think about platform innovation, we need to really think about the unit of observation as being a, a, you know, an, an entity that consists of many other, uh, many other entities. So with that in mind, um, <clears throat> when we think about platform innovation um, as kind of what, what it is that contributes, uh, contributes value here, so uh, take a platform, um, an existing platform, we have some technological functionality, that's what defines the technological product value, and uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on on that level. 
Then um, there is very often, or many platforms have a, a very explicit user-created um, element to them, right? So on YouTube, you can upload your own uh, your own videos. So TikTok these days, um, uh, and then also you have complementers that also add some value to uh, to the overall platform uh, platform ecosystem. Now. Where then, or what then does innovation do um, in this uh, in such a setting? So the kind of narrow view of uh, platform innovation would be to say that the platform itself increases the technological product value. But clearly, um, when we think about uh, when we think about the value of the overall ecosystem of the overall platform ecosystem, then it's not just the technological product value, but also the things that are generated from that. Right. So users may be able to do more things um, with new functionality. They might be, uh, you know, they might they might with uh, YouTube introducing the the shorts, for example, they are now able to produce TikTok style videos as. Uh, as users. Um, and then, of course, there's complementers that react to an, a change in the technological uh, infrastructure of the platform itself. So therefore, um, the ecosystem as such gains value, not just from the uh, behavior of the platform itself, but also from the, the users changing, uh, changing their uh, behavior and the complementers uh, that also change their uh, change their behavior. So here's just a couple of um, examples of how these might be affected. So um, the pricing structure, to some extent, might be a business model innovation that will increase the value of the platform itself, and it might generate further uh, further innovations. Um, users might get additional value from, uh, or might create additional value if they're able to port their data across different uh, across different platforms. So you can integrate more um, and gain uh, and create more value from that. Um, complementers might have an easier time developing complements for a particular platform if they have access to software development kits. Um, but at the same time, if there are first party complements, i.e. complements that are produced by the platform owner that may either spur further innovations um, by the um, uh, further innovations by um, other complementers, or it might hinder. So there are two forces going on at this point. So thinking about that, um, I would think about, um, you know, different types of studies on innovation on platforms. And uh, I will, here I will follow Mikhail's lead and uh, shamelessly uh, cite or, or refer to some of, uh, some of my own work. Um, so there are studies on innovation by the platform. And so I can think of, for example, one where technological parameters affect the behavior of complementers, right? So I could uh, I could introduce a new generation of, say, a game console. That's what we did in that paper. And that may change uh, the innovative behavior of complementers. Um, there might also be innovation in complements in the sense that I might release a first-party complement um, that complementers can then, or independent complementers can then uh, use as inspiration, or they might feel uh, competes uh, with their own developments. Uh, so Feng Zhu has done a, a very interesting work that shows that Amazon, when they sort of release or when they are active in a particular market niche, then other uh, third-party complementaries will tend to leave uh, that particular market. Now, 
That all um, takes into account the behavior of complementers um, and the behavior of the platform and in, in the complementary market. We can also think of complementers as the unit of analysis. Um, so we might have um, complementers reacting to changes in the rules of the platform, changes in the governance structure and the incentive structure of the platform. Um, Complements might be multi-homing on different uh, different uh, types of platforms. So that's especially the case in, uh, say, video games. Um, at that point, or in that in that industry, you might have different uh, platforms, and complements have an interest in making their platforms available, uh, in making their game available to different uh, platforms. And of course, complementers may innovate simply by filling the product space. Right, so uh, we we often think of the product space uh, in the complements market as consisting of several smaller market niches, and of course, every new uh, complement will fill the product space for for, uh, for the platform ecosystem as such. Now, there may also be novel kinds of innovation, or kind of what we may not think of as uh, as as typical uh, sources of innovation. So. Um, there is a lot of opportunities or there are a lot of opportunities looking at user-generated content. Um, so where the consumer basically becomes a producer of content. And of course, on social media, that's in particular um, a one of the ways in which a platform actually adds value in the first place. Um, so what we looked at here was a uh, uh, was a set of game wikis. So Wikipedia kind of, uh, type pages that basically were running on user-generated uh, content. So, you know, most of the time I spoke about individual, um, <clears throat> I spoke about individual actors, either the platform or the complementer or the user. So what then is different to firm level studies here? First of all, um, there are interdependencies among actors. So the value that's created is always to be considered by the system, not by separate actors. So as uh, as I mentioned on the on the first slide or on the second slide, um, a change in the platform itself will generate follow-on innovations by uh, by other actors in the system, and that's something that we need to take into account in uh, uh, studies on platform innovation. Many platforms tend to be regulated, especially now and especially in Europe, when we think about the DMA and the DSA, this also means that the regulator plays a much more crucial role, a much more interventionist role than uh, in many other industries that we like to uh, we like to study. So that affects innovation at all levels, of course. We have complementer families. Um, we often think of complementers as these atomistic small small actors uh, developing apps or uh, developing uh, video games and so on many of them are actually multi-product firms that will consider the cross interdependencies between their products and finally the role of entry uh, the role of entrance is uh, is also important so much of the innovative activity actually takes place by entrance um at the at the complementary uh, market level um who will then contribute to fairly well defined existing categories right so that's also a, a difference to what we will often think of as markets that have fairly high entry barriers and where only existing players can basically work on improving their products rather than um, <clears throat> uh, rather than um, uh, you know entering new stuff. 
However, digital platforms are also an interesting, I would say, petri dish to study what I would consider much more classical strategy uh, strategy questions. So one of the things, one of the things that, that we see a lot in platforms is generational innovations. So the technology life cycles are typically very short and they're often very well defined through new releases, through new generations. So for those of us who've been studying kind of technology life cycles, platforms are actually a very good setting to do that in. Portfolio choices. Um, you know, if you if you think about um, Ferrero and their choices on their portfolio, or if you think about Procter and Gamble and their portfolio choices, these products will not will take a long time to be taken off the market. Um, again, taking the video game industry, a game dies after one year, right? So basically, you have to make portfolio choices on a very very regular basis, um, which gives you a much much larger number of observations of portfolio choices in many platform markets. Imitation can be quick and can be low cost, sometimes even encouraged. So apps, when, when uh, Facebook first accepted apps or kind of created a market for apps, imitation was very much encouraged. That's why, you know, the older users among us, when they had to, when they started out with Facebook, you all of a sudden had seven different versions of the uh, of the wall app right so you had the wonder wall and the super wall and whatnot and all of them basically did the same thing which basically gave you more functionality to have on your timeline uh which then was called a wall um intra-industry diversification um you have multi-product firms that diversify into very well-defined market niches that again is something that uh, we typically have to look for quite you know, quite closely um, in, in different markets and in many cases in, uh, in platforms, we do have that. And you have regulatory interventions in the natural, in the, in the, you know, literal sense of the word, but we also have interventions that affect a large number of actors and they are exogenous, right? So platform owners often change the rules to increase engagement, to uh, increase quality and so on. So we have a large number of complementers that are affected by a change in the platform rules, which is actually a very nice setting if you want to look for causal inference, for example, or if you want to look for causal identification of certain strategies. So where do I see gaps in uh, current research? And these are just four questions that I'm throwing out. Um, and there are many hundred more, I'm sure. Um, but one thing, uh, one question I'd be interested in is what determines the optimal level and type of direction or, or control by the platform for complementers, right? Is it really a free for all or should we take a very restrictive view on what complementers can do and how many complementers I want to have on my platform? Second, how does the openness of a platform affect innovativeness of complementers? So it's kind of related to the first question, but uh, uh, do I require some qualification to, for my complementers to be active on, uh, on the platform? Third, can the prosumer model of innovation, so in other words, user innovation or some sort of content uh, produced by, consumer, by, by users, can that substitute for directed innovation by complementers? And finally, um, kind of a maybe a broader question, which features, which organizational and governance features of platforms affect innovative activity the most? And with that, thanks very much.
again, thank you, thank you very much, Tobias. Uh, great presentation. Again, encourage people who want to start already a conversation in the chat, please do that. And I would like to pass the torch to Marka to talk about the industry. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Elena, for excellent moderation of the panel, for all our distinguished panelists to joining, and for all of you to be here again for another uh, STR panel. Uh, my name is Marka Moen uh, from UNC Keenan Flagler. Uh, I'm going to take an industry level perspective in our conversation today, really talking about what are the interrelationships between industry dynamics and strategic management of innovation as a whole. And uh, since the unit of analysis here is industry, I want to actually walk us back a little bit, I'm a historian in heart, into how actually the origins of the field of strategy came and take us back to some of IO frameworks uh, from which we started to depart. And uh, one of them is the structure conduct performance uh, framework that being uh, really formalized in 1959 with the idea that market structure is everything that is behind firm performance, whether it is attributes such as number of competitors, barriers to entry and exit, the extent to which you can differentiate products. It didn't matter. These were the market structures sort of set in the stone that then determined firm conduct and strategies. And here, I would say there was a very strong determinism attitude to this, that whatever the structure was, firms had to follow their strategies, either it was price taking, their product portfolios that they had, et cetera, et cetera, and pursue that path. And in all of that, the sequence of what the market imposed on them and the strategies that they had to then follow shape the performance that they have. And many of us who teach core strategy know that the immediate application of it in our classes will be the five forces model of industry competition, really taking this a strict view. And with this, there has been as like ideas of like revisionist ideas around whether this IO perspective actually works or not, there has been empirical work to really see to what extent firm performance really comes from industry level factors versus what we care deeply about in strategy and that those are either corporate level or business unit level factors. And one of the seminal work here, like Richard Schmalenzi's 1980 paper was really the one that came out in response to this debate. He looked at a sample of firms in 1975 in manufacturing sector and the findings of his study really shook the field. It was like, everything is about industry. There are no corporate level or business unit level effects in IO models are right. This was followed by Romelt 1991, a continuation of this line, but for an expanded time period, not just thinking about 1979, which found very, very contrasting results. Here in Rommel's finding, in addition to industry having played some role, there was also a very, very strong business unit level uh, factor there, less of a corporate level effect. And then uh, Anita McGann and Markel Porter continued this line of thought by expanding years even further, expanding industry line of setups, 
going back a little bit into some findings to show that there is a blend of industry level effects versus corporate level effects here. And just in case you're wondering, the show is still going on. Uh, the latest uh, episode of it is like a piece by Haifan Wang and Roscoff in Strategic Management Review that revisits this issue. So why is it that I'm starting uh, this panel and conversation with this uh, sort of historical view of the importance of industries? Because I want to situate our conversation and to say, we're not going to talk about this. This is a debate that has had very important implications for strategy really shifting us into knowing that instead of very fixed structures assumed as industries with homogeneous firms, we have now acknowledged that there is a very blurred boundary around what we call it industries with a lot of heterogeneity in size, resource endowments, and many other factors. And with that, with that acknowledgement, is where strategy, whether it's a strategic management of innovation or any other topic of core and corporate strategy really come to play. Because as we acknowledge the role of industries, these are really firms that are either involved in shaping either the classic forms of industry structure or industry dynamics, or these are firms that for survival, for regaining their competitive advantage, they have to think about ways in which they can adapt their strategies, they can adapt their design. So with this, now let's just start our deep dive into thinking about industry dynamics, its interaction with strategic management. And please take this as a caveat that this is not the way, the renewed way that we want to look at strategy, at uh, industry dynamics. So when I talk about industry dynamics and the ways in which it could matter for strategic management of innovation, uh, a bit of a primer in terms of what I mean by this. Uh, this is the can canonical stylized uh, model of industry evolution by Michael Gorth and Steve Klepper, where they looked at across 50 different industries and came up with this very, very consistent patterns that as industries move uh, over time, after the first product commercialization happens in that industry, they first experience what they call an introduction stage. That's when there are often very few companies uh, in an industry, sort of a quasi-monopoly with respect to products and firms, but things quickly change. For industries that do emerge will immediately have what is a growth stage. This is accompanied by an accelerated rate of both firm entry and adoption of products by customers in terms of dollar value of sales. And as things start to progress, more and more customers are attracted to an industry, more and more firms tend to come, but business won't be as rosy as always. So we'll get into a point where the number of firms start to decline. There is often a 40% drop in number of firms in what they call the shakeout stage in an industry. What is often impressive in their view of work is that uh, for the shakeout, this does not necessarily map into any decline in demand and customer adoption of the products. Indeed, it could be that as the number of firms decreases in this stage, more and more customers are still attracted to the industry. This discrepancy is probably about firms having achieved economies of scale or having pursued process innovations that make 
a room for fewer of them, but more and more customers. And eventually we'll have a decline stage there. So as much as these trends are valuable in terms of their documentation, uh, the strategy field has really thought about them with respect to three foundational theories describing ex and explaining these industry uh, level trends. Here, I don't have that many citations. I'm going to refer you to check uh, Rashriya Garval and Mary Tripps' amazing literature review on the topic that has like many of the sites about these uh, three foundational theories. But the essence of it is that we have devoted a lot of time and attention into understanding, well, why is it that we see these trends happening? What is governing uh, introduction stage, growth, shakeout, and decline? And these three foundational theories really point us into different ways and different explanations. Uh, evolutionary economics uh, view uh, tells us that Across these stages, there are evolving sources of information and locus of experimentation. When we're thinking about early stages of an industry, more and more external knowledge needs to be attracted to an industry. More and more experimentation is needed. And as a result of that, we need a lot of firms to pursue parallel experiments to be able to resolve uncertainties that are out there. But well, after we transition to shakeout and decline stage, these knowledge sources, information sources change. They become internal to the industry. We already know what we needed to know. There are fewer uncertainties to be resolved. So, well, maybe there is not much room for a lot of folks to come in. Uh, when we think about the technology management explanation of uh, these same trends, there are a lot of parallels with ideas in evolutionary economics, but now, the unit, the focus becomes the technology, not the entire market, not the entire industry, but a lot of attention into how in those early stages, firms tend to experiment and innovate with respect to product features. But as we transition into later stages, the focus will be on process innovation, perhaps achieving more economies of scale and in tandem with all of these, it is possible that right around the time that we observe industries uh, shake out between stage two and three, dominant designs could emerge in some industry. The third theory, population ecology, really takes us to social forces, to institutional forces, and says that as much as we need information, as much as we need to evolve and experiment with technologies, we also want to think about social legitimacy the institutions that need to be built around industries and what we really see as an increasing trend and then later a decreasing trend is a, a shift in legitimization forces initially playing a huge role and then competition forces playing a role later on. So with this primer, I want to situate our conversation and make a call to say, we know all of these about industry level patterns. What is it that's gov governing and shifting uh, industries from one stage to another, but industries don't evolve on their own. These are really firms. These are really strategic actions of actors that at every point in time, change the foundation, pursue those knowledge sourcing and information sourcing activities following evolutionary economics logic. 
firms that pursue technology experimentation following technology management logic or firms that pursue social legitimizing strategies following the population ecology perspective. They really drive these changes. And as strategy scholars, although we have paid a lot of attention to what some of those strategic actions could be, there is still a lot more to do. And at the same time, taking an adaptation perspective, even if firms do not want to involve in shaping some of these trends, ideas around which how they have to adapt to the circumstances of industries as we move from one stage to another play a huge role. So with this, what I want to do next is to actually give you a flavor of the research in strategic management around these topics in ways in which we have linked our firm strategy with these industry level patterns beyond just the stages and the milestones that I talked about. I think the first category of research here that has received continued interest over the past three, four decades is how we adopt, adapt to industry shocks. And this is not necessarily as for as industries move and transition from one stage to another. These could be shocks that happen at any moment in time, whether they be technological regime changes, shocks to demand trends, shifts in social perceptions of customers, or regulatory and institutional factors. I think the very, very large and impressive body of literature has really unpacked these in ways that I could not really put single out one citation here. The other way that we've paid a lot of attention to uh, this intersection between industry dynamics and firm strategy is how is it that firms can either foresee or adapt to the emergence of dominant designs. Of course, I want to say not all industries experience and have dominant designs, but for those cases that they do, this creates a lot of uncertainty for firms that might have invested in the variety of ways that technological designs could have worked initially, but then find themselves that the industry has converged around one. So are there timing windows of opportunity uh, with respect to when to enter, when to withdraw investment, and what else firms can do? What are firm attributes that could actually help firms either shape or adapt to dominant designs? A huge literature about the role of diversifying entrants versus startups in industries and which of them uh, succeed. As a hint, the answer is diversifying entrants. And also the role of collective action of firms, uh, for example, in form of industry standard setting that could then help with uh, dominant design uh, processes. Uh, this is, as I said, an area of huge continued interest as we think about these panels. But there are also emerging areas of uh, interest that I want to give like a sampler of some research that has been going on here and perhaps more research questions that can come out of it. Uh, when I was talking, and these are industry incubation, reemergence, industry stall, and failure, starting with industry incubation, and this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, my dissertation, really the idea that when we looked at those classic models of industry dynamics, time zero started with the first product commercialization in an industry. 
But a case study of agricultural biotechnology where there was data about firms that were pursuing R&D experiments before commercializing their products really revealed that there is an 18-year lead in what I refer to as incubation stage between the first scientific discovery in an area and the time where the first product commercialization happens. And the number of firms, these gray bars here, that are involved in experimentation in this period, actually 85% of them never reach a product commercialization, never count as classic industry firms that we consider, and this opens up huge opportunities for examining not just this stage, the constraints and opportunities that it creates for companies, but how is it that firms actually manage surviving for so long with no economic value creation options? What strategies do they pursue? Another line of research, this idea of reemergence as something that Ron Adner and Daniel Snow have already identified at seeds in their 2010 paper and Ryan Raffaelli has really started to uh, bring it back to our conversation is that even after we think industries and technologies have reached their stage of decline, there are opportunities for reviving them for their reemergence. So this opens up a lot of research opportunities for us to think and say, well, Maybe what we thought is the death of an industry is not really that. So what are strategies now that firms can pursue? What types of innovations beyond the old menu of options that we have had could come here? And the final line that's uh, recently uh, starting to gain a lot of attraction is this idea of industry stall and failure. Because we do have a tendency for successful survivalship bias in our studies. We tend to look at industries that did emerge, became successful. That's actually how we call them an industry, but these to be industries or might have been industries that never emerged. What's your story? Uh, Pena Roscon and Felipe Santos have a paper about mobile money. Tiona Zozol and Mary Trepses have work on air taxi, and Tiona has other work on smart cities that really start to unpack some of these challenges, but raise a lot and a lot of questions with respect to both firm entry, managing uncertainty, and then divestiture strategies here. So what I hope that this presentation I was able to do is to show you a lot of collective achievements that we have had in this area, but perhaps encourage you to engage in many more research opportunities that are still out there around these topics. Thank you very much for your time. Looking forward to the discussion. And thank you so much, Maka, in great presentation. So we uh, there are also questions, I think, to both you and Tobias in the chat. And in the meanwhile, we go to the most macro level with Miles. Great. So again, I want to uh, thank the organizers for the invitation. Um, want to thank everyone who's taking the time to be here live. There's a lot of you and anyone who might be looking at this uh, some later time. So again, you know, my job was tasked to think about regions or, or more of geography with respect to knowledge and innovation. And let me just take a second to say, why would we care about regions? And Mikhail's sort of foreshadowed some of the things that I think they're really important here. So the first is 
just this observation that knowledge is not distributed uniformly across geographies. So because it's not you know, distributed uniformly, where you are actually matters. So it's one region why regions matter, but more so when you add the second observation that it's not only geographically distributed or concentrated in different places, but geographic distance appears to create frictions for knowledge flow. So it's not only in certain places, but it's often hard to leak or it's more easy to access when you're closer to it. So those two elements combined, I think give us very fundamental reasons when we're thinking about knowledge and ideas and that for why regions matter. There's another reason too, and I'll call this more of a research design element, is that regions will also invoke variation in factors that we think would affect knowledge creation and knowledge flow, but might relate to these more underlying things. So um, Tobias has mentioned regulations. Yeah, well, those often vary by region, right? And we have variants that's invoked where you're looking at or culture or other types of elements. So there's all sorts of things that we can expect that affect knowledge flow and as a result, potentially innovation. And they will vary by region also. And they're not even necessarily these fundamental things. So from my point of view, regions are really important because they're these elements that are really fundamental about regions, but then go back and affect so they enhance or they suppress some of these more micro mechanisms. So either at the individual level or the firm or even the platform level that we've talked about. So as a result, you know, I think there's really fundamental reasons why we care about regions. And there's also really nice research design reasons that we care about regions. So I wanna talk about existing research. And again, like with everyone else, I can't do this justice and I'm going to leave out important sites. So my apologies, the idea is not to offend anyone, but just to sort of categorize how I see the existing research and in particular, how it will also relate to firm level interest. So the first is this notion of, okay, if geography or regions, you know, if knowledge is not geographically continuous, if it's concentrated and it doesn't flow, are there really innovation advantages to being in these regions that have these concentrations of activity? Yeah, and we see a fair amount of research demonstrating that industry clusters are associated with greater innovation. And that can be innovation at the regional level, or it could be that firms within those clusters also seem to innovate more. So again, the follow-on from those ob initial observations why regions matter, yeah, th that appears in the research. And so we have a, a lot of empirical evidence of that. Well, of course, if regions matter and knowledge is often localized, companies can do something about that because they can choose where they locate or at least choose where parts of their organization locate. And again, consistent with what we would expect, yeah, we see a lot of evidence that companies are attracted to locations that have these agglomerations of similar companies and largely to access the knowledge base there. 
Um, I think a little bit more interesting, and again, my own bias, is there's also a strategic element of that. And moving to regions where knowledge flows is potentially really great, or it could be really bad if the knowledge that you possess as a company is better than what others have, and you actually want to protect that. So there becomes a strategic element that, you know, maybe moving to an area where ideas flow more quickly is not always a good thing. And again, we do see evidence of this, that companies that are potentially on the forefront are a little bit more cautious about locating in industry clusters, again, fearing for this possibility that the knowledge might spill over. So like I say, I like to view this, and we'll get to the next point too, is really this association that, okay, if we conceptually think that regions matter, we show that there is this increased innovation in certain regions. We show that companies acknowledge this and try and move there, but they also will hold back knowing in certain cases there might be a strategic rationale. Well, there becomes another really interesting research topic and a set of research findings. Again, if companies know this, that they are both facing this ability to try and tap into knowledge in a region, but prevent what they know being shared to everyone else there, they can actually configure their internal operations, how they organize within the company to try and tap the most benefits and minimize the chance of knowledge leakage. So again, this notion of these factors are important, we see them, companies tend to choose locations based on them, but there are these competing elements. But again, managers understand this and in some ways think about structuring their internal organizations and how they approach different elements in different regions. So when it comes to the work in strategic management in regions, this is how I like to think about it. And I think sort of the important elements that we bring to this, and again, how especially how it maps back to companies. Um, I was also asked to talk about research gaps. And, you know, my experience has been when you ever ask someone to talk about research gaps or interesting next steps, you might as well just ask them, what are you working on? So let me tell you what I'm working on. So I, I want to talk about three things. So first, as I mentioned, right, this notion that we care about regions is we think that regions lead to this this variance in a lot of underlying mechanisms. Well, the question is, is if we show that regions differ, how can we identify, is it the regulation per se, or does the regulation you know, change in underlying mechanisms of how companies interact with each other, or does the regulation change who decides to immigrate to a region or not? It could be all sorts of things. And again, if our goal is eventually to sort of understand both what's happening and to give guidance to both managers or policymakers, teasing this out becomes really important. And so, again, I think, you know, it's been alluded to with a couple of the other presentations, you know, there's lots of different things happening. I think one of the really interesting things is can we go further to show exactly what's driving it? versus other plausible alternatives or theories. The other thing I think that's really interesting is this notion about cluster dynamics. 
and especially the, the notion of innovation. So let, let me give you a couple examples as I talk about this. So just as Malka mentioned before, and you gave the example, we have these stylized models of how industries evolve. We have some stylized models of how clusters evolve too. Um, what's really interesting is if you actually go to the data, the stylized models are probably the exception rather than the norm. Um, so there is this whole thing, if we care about cluster dynamics and how they happen, um, they're not sort of our sort of naive standardized model. So there's something happening there, probably something worthy of investigation. The other thing, and this began to, allude, to sort of harken back or allude to Min Jung's dissertation, which I'm highlighting here, is when you think about cluster dynamics, again, we're thinking about regions and I wanna bring back this notion of regions. And my apologies, I can only talk to this because I know the data in the United States, um, but you know, it's I don't know if it's a more international phenomena, but actually mobility in the United States across regions has declined substantially over the last 70 years. So internal mobility in the United States is probably about half of what it was in the 1950s, which means that people like living where they live. And some of my work, and I'll talk about is that people will purposely move between companies and industries to stay in a geography that like they like, especially um, you know, if they have opportunities. So if we take a look at an industry clusters where I live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, this was a huge concentration in the computer industry. So for those of you who are at this point more historians in um, the computer industry, so companies like Control Data or Cray Computers, the big supercomputer companies, those are Minnesota companies. They're really not around anymore. And it's not like everybody who worked in those businesses sort of retired over time or just picked up and moved. Actually, there's a lot of documentation that a number of those engineers moved over to the fledgling medical device industry. So if you take a look, you know, a majority of the class three medical devices approved in the world come out of Minnesota. And these are often very electronic, very computational devices. Think of internal defibrillators, internal pacemakers, those types of things. And one, uh, you know, historians of the industry have made the case that a lot of this is a reflection of the talent in the computer industry in the region staying and moving into the med device region and how those clusters have changed and really changed the nature of innovation. So this notion that Clusters only sort of build in or, you know, everybody stops making semiconductors in New York one day and moves to California probably is not how it happens. And if we understand a little bit more of the reality or the dynamics of this, we probably understand, we can understand a little bit better the nature of the innovation. And this all focuses on caring about regions. And then finally, last one last thing that I'd say in terms of research gaps is, you know, we make a lot of you know, we focus a lot, we make a lot out of the notions of where companies locate within regions and what it means, but most of us spend a lot of our time not at work. Um, so 
does where people actually live in a region and how close they are to each other, those can lead to very different regional differences that affect you know, knowledge and innovation, but aren't directly related to being in the company or can have influence on regions where people live in more neighborhoods close to each other. And if they run into each other and there's sort of serendipitous interactions, that those could foster more innovation than areas where people are dispersed, they live in the suburbs, those types of things. So again, I think that these are all research gaps that talk about issues that we fundamentally care about in knowledge and innovation, but are also fundamentally linked to the notions of regions and what they are. And so just to summarize, I wanna go back to why we care about re regions. There are these very fundamental elements and there's research design elements. And I think that there's a lot of interesting questions and a lot of room for interesting insight by sort of thinking through going back to these mechanisms that are more micro than the region and understanding how regions either enhance or sometimes suppress these mechanisms. And I'll stop at that point. Thank you, thank you so much, Miles. Actually, thanks again to all the um, to uh, to all the panelists. Uh, and yeah, I guess just maybe as a slight concluding remark on my side. Uh, actually, while I was listening to all of those presentations, it did seem that there are also a lot of links all between all of those levels, right? You know, talking about like regional clusters that may have some impact on the industry evolution, right, lead to emergence of a new industry, but also at the uh, plat but also like at the platform level, because there is some also regulatory changes. And of course, with the indiv individual level where we have the co-location of inventors, which is affected by the geographical cluster, and then in turn has spillovers for most likely platforms and industry evolution. Um, so I hope there were a lot of interesting insights in terms of how all those different levels can inform strategy level research. And I guess this is the moment also to open the discussion uh, into the, uh, to, to the q and I actually also wanted to ask maybe for a moment if people can uh, put the videos on so that we can make a little uh, maybe picture, uh, a photo for posterity and Twitter. And so if you could please have uh, let me see when we get the full screen. Okay. Um, okay. Please, everybody, smile and say strategy. Okay. So let me see. It works. And let me just do it for the sec for the second time, and then we can get to the cool stuff like Q and A. Okay. Um, well, I think we are mostly done with that, so I'll just save the file, and we'll we'll post it all. Uh, by the way, also just uh, to address, we we will have this uh, this posted on uh, on the STR channel on YouTube, uh, right? So 
not sure if it's going to happen today or a bit later, but everybody is very welcome to revisit uh, the recording. I would, so we had a lot of questions. If you don't mind, I just wanted to start maybe with some questions which could be relevant for like more than one panelist. So I wanted to go back to the question by uh, uh, Man uh, Manash, who was asking uh, the back to so given the uh, given the um, so so sorry sorry the question by Habibi. So do we expect geography to have that much weight given digitization? Like matching starting levels of novelty innovation with a more recent outlook, and I feel like this could be questioned certainly for both uh, Miles and Mikael, and possibly also for Marka and Tobias. I'll go first. Sure. Um, no, I, I think absolutely the the fact that we can communicate we're all together. At the same time, I think that. Still to this point, there's a number of things, and I think we're beginning to get more and more research that being geographically, that something like Zoom is not a perfect um, substitute for being geographically proximate. It's gonna affect still the nature of our interactions. It potentially affects planned versus unplanned interactions. So um, yeah, I think it's an interesting observation, but for as many people calling to the death of geography in the last several years, I don't think anybody's quite nailed the stake in its heart yet. Yeah, I, I would I would totally second that. I think uh, we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen the inequality uh, the geography inequality in terms of innovation performance decrease. I think if anything, they've been increasing. Uh, new technologies as far as i know haven't changed that uh and part of it could be from the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of uh good ideas come from a rich interactions and those are interactions that don't necessarily happen on zoom and uh, if i may take an industry level and technology perspective on it uh this is uh, as much as digitization is reducing barriers to entry in some dimensions for firms may shorten the duration of times that it may take industries and firms to achieve certain aspects of their business. Uh, there is still the reality of the complementary assets that need to go with knowledge-based resources, with everything that's digitized. And to the extent that those are still remaining as physical infrastructure or even the human capital side of it that uh, experiences longer cycles of adaptation and learning, I think it's an open debate to know which of the forces prevail over another into moving us into an entirely new regime where at least principles of thinking about either industry individual like or regions totally disappear. I I would also tend to agree. And I think, I mean, to, to, to take on uh, Marka's uh, point about complementary assets, I mean, platforms live live from having complementers. And I think what's, uh, what's relevant there is that many complementers or many producers of complementers actually have been with the platform at some point. So as long as the, plat the, the firm with the platform remains a physical working space, and I think you know, we can talk about the future of work and that may 
throw everything overboard. But as long as the platform as such is a is a physical working space, then the people that are best placed to produce complements for the platform are going to be the people that work there at some point and therefore live very close by. So I think there's a uh, that that you know death of distance or death of geography is uh, also in the in the platform space probably not not quite there yet. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I also want to pick on another question. Um, it was a question by Xiao Wei for uh, Tobias and Maka, uh, and I've seen that Tobias already started answering this question. So it's uh, how do you perceive the platform perspective on innovation differs from the industry perspective of innovation. Uh, from the presentation so far, I see a lot of similarities. So I wonder if Tobias, you want to add anything and what are the what are Marcus' thoughts on that? I mean, if I if if I were to um maybe think of think of an industry as an SIC code interacted with a value chain. Um when I study an industry, um, or when 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 we study industry, very often we look at we look at actors at the same stage of the value chain um, and how they compete with each other. Whereas um, on a platform level, you almost cannot, you, you cannot study a platform without looking at different actors at different levels or at different, at different positions in the, in the network, in the value creation, uh, creation network. And I think that's where the, um, that's where a, a fundamental difference uh, lies also. Uh, this this is a great question, and I very much agree with uh, Tobias' points on it. And uh, I apologize if we did not start with defining these terms. What is an industry? What is a platform? What is a market? So let me take a step back, actually, and define those. Because if you think about the historical view of what an industry is, it's really the SIC codes, whatever the government, some external entity imposes on it. But a more like granular way to think about it could be producers and firms that are offering similar products addressing the same needs. So really uh, what brings industries together as a construct are the producer firms the product that they're working on. But there are a number of ancillary, I would say very related constructs here. And one of them is the market versus industry because when we take a market view, we're no longer thinking about just the producers and the product itself. We're thinking about all the interactions. Maybe in historical terms, market was a time and place. People knew that at a particular time they're going to all go to a location and then they buy and sell vegetable, grains, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're having a different form of it uh, in our today's economy. But that market view then brings in who the customers are, who the suppliers are, what are the regulatory social forces around it, but still has the focal product that's being transacted at the core of it. Now, uh, building on uh, Tobias's comments, I think, as you saw, like my answer had a value chain element definitely to it. But if you want to like, like generalize the ideas and say now, where is it that platforms come into play? And, uh, at least to me, and there are more experts here on platforms, the core of it is really a market friction 
that needs to be handled for two otherwise separate sides of markets to come together. If there were no market frictions, these two sides would have found each other and we did not need to have that interface, that platform to connect them. So platforms come in as these mediators. Their role is a lot more expanded, more innovative than what I'm narrowing down to mediators, but to collect, connect these forces. Now, the interrelationship with industry is that then we may have one industry on one side, another industry on the other side, the platforms connecting them, and maybe the polar proliferation of various types of platforms may take us to a different world where there will be a ride sharing industry coming out of what used to be these like individual like platforms in between. And uh, Tobias, uh, please uh, uh, fix any of the mistakes I made in uh, describing your area of research. No, Maka, I think this is a great, this is a great way of describing it. I mean, they do, they do somehow facilitate transactions that otherwise would not be possible, right? And these could be frictions like knowledge about the other side of the platform could be, um, you know, availability and so on. So I think that, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully with you there. Thanks. So um, another question I get, and again, I'm, uh, I'm trying to pick up a bit something that could be relevant for all panelists. So question by Christina. How should we think about establishment level activity that operates at the level of a group of individuals and is governed by organizational mechanisms, but varies within a firm? So actually, Christina, would you like to maybe comment a bit on that question? I think, I think thank you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm preoccupied at the moment around establishment level variation within firms for my own selfish research reasons, though. The very interesting comments we just had around value chains also suggest that we are maybe um, uh, missing some other levels of aggregation uh, when we think strategy is one of these things or we reference firms as sort of our base case when in fact, if we're comparing an industry of vertically integrated versus not integrated firms and value chains, we might be mixing apples and oranges. And when we look at establishments within firms, we often see different decision rights, different incentives, different knowledge capabilities, but they're still operating like organizations. They're not individuals, but they're not firms either. And I'm curious around how we want to think about that sort of as a field. I think, I think Christina, you're basically just making a case for integrating organizational economics into strategy, <laughs> which I'm I'm full on for that. Let, let me answer that react a little differently. Um, and so I think it, it, Christina, what you're doing, right? It's, it's acknowledging the reality of business organizations are, are much more complex than what we abstract to oftentimes when we think about these things. And many of the panelists alluded to this. So the notion that, you know, in platforms that we have diversification of companies, so they'll be doing many different things. And Maka, I can't help when I think about agricultural biotech is, yeah, why did they stay in there? Um, you would know more than me, you can prove me wrong. They're part of diversified companies and right, making bets 
on other things. You know, the work on regions, right? We're often looking at multi-business firms and why they're choosing to be in one place versus another or tying them. Um, so I don't think it's inconsistent with what Tobias is mentioning, but just this notion that these sort of, I forget who referenced population economy, microbreweries do not represent the population of business entities that we care about. And those are nice and contained in that, but um, as soon as we move to the complexities of the world, some of that falls away. And are we embracing those complexities or ignoring them? Um, I think that that's an important question to ask ourselves. I don't have a theoretical answer to this, but wanted to uh, like perhaps give a cautionary note about our empirical methods and replication of results. And in that more carefulness in terms of, as you alluded to, Christina, what is it that we call firms versus establishment, the data sources that bring in. And this is very much in my mind because you saw in my presentation, I started with this debate about does industry matter? And the last time I read these papers was in Deepak Samaya's PhD seminar years ago. And I, as I was revisiting them yesterday, I was like, it looks like that the whole difference between these papers at least to a good extent, come from whether they counted firm level, corporate level, business unit level, analysis. And if we're calling all of them firm, then we need to be careful for the empirical inference, at least. Um, so I think, well, we, we perhaps can have one more question for the last minute. Actually, I think it's an interesting question by uh, Yuxi Zhao. From a geography perspective, it seems scholars from different research communities can learn a lot from each other. For example, how can economic geographers contribute to strategic entrepreneurship scholars? My guess is I'm that's probably as targeted to me as anyone else, and I don't see anybody grabbing the microphone. Um, so absolutely, I think, you know, there is a lot of overlap or a lot of spillover between these ideas. Um, and, you know, even looking at the, both some of the citations there, but, you know, for me, I think, you know, maybe to directly answer the question, I, I hope in ways that are fruitful about thinking about our research and that is these notions of, being clear about what are the mechanisms coming from these underlying theories, how they relate to the questions at hand that we care about in strategy, and to what extent that can we, can we use those to both advance theory and advance our testing. Yeah, the, the, I think that's the biggest payoff, but is there a payoff there? A absolutely. And I'll just try to, if I, if I get uh, a chance to react quickly to both Christina and I think these questions. Um, I think we have here uh, talked about five level of analysis, but I think there's just plenty more, and 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 I think that makes the the kind of the richness of our field. Uh, we're not living in a field like maybe economics that is very paradigmatic, and I think that's great. Uh, I think we can learn from uh, using different uh, unit of analysis. And sometimes it's annoying because we feel like we repeat the same thing over and over again across different like kind of sub sub schools uh, within that but I also think overall it creates for more variety and perhaps 
a little bit less rigidity uh, for us as a field. So by all means, I think I think uh, I, I'm 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 not preferring. I'm a John Van Manen supporter in that sense. I'm, I would I would I would I would go for uh, for for diversity and learning from each other's perspectives. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Miles and Mikhail. So it looks like we hit the mark of like one thirty precisely. So I want to say again, thank you very much to Marka, uh, Tobias, uh, Mikhail, and Miles. Especially Marka, thanks for bringing us together. Uh, thanks to the STR for giving us the space. If you would like to revisit it, it will be uploaded at some point to YouTube. And with that, in, thanks again for the great discussion. Hope you all enjoyed our symposium.